0: Hey, everybody, Maddie Sofia here with Emily Kwong. This year has been an unpredictable one, to say the least. And so many of you have reached out to thank us for being a constant in your life. Science news you can rely on. But here's the thing. You have been a constant in our lives, too. Mm -hmm. Making this show for you, reading your emails. Sassing you on Twitter. Yes, all of that has given us a tremendous amount of purpose and responsibility, and we thank you for that. Absolutely. And we need your help to continue doing this work. Podcasts Mm -hmm. like Shortwave rely on listeners like you to support your local member station. Yeah, all year we have been hunched over in our closets to bring the news you need to stay safe during the pandemic. Now we need you to donate to your local member station. So go to donate.npr.org short and give any amount you can. Again, that's donate.npr.org short. You can help us keep those closet lights on. You're listening to Shortwave from NPR. States all across the country are experiencing a surge in coronavirus cases. For doctors working in community clinics like Alberto Marcellin in Omaha, Nebraska, that's no surprise.
1: There was a time where we weren't getting any positive cases. We would run 10, 15, 20 tests per day, zero positive. And then suddenly... We're getting nearly 40 to 50% positive cases. So we know something was on the rise. So we're not surprised when it comes on the news that more and more people are being diagnosed.
2: The doubling time for COVID-19 hospitalizations in Omaha. Every family in Nebraska will be affected either by a
0: death or serious illness. That's the message. From like many states in, in the Midwest, prepare, Nebraska was somewhat spared during the early days of the pandemic. In the pandemic. last 24 hours alone. At least but now, Nebraska has the most cases per capita of any state in the
1: U.S. I had a telehealth and I was talking to them on the phone. They were doing okay. And then the next day, they just went from doing fine to absolutely you have to go in a hospital. Just by looking at him, I could tell he wasn't doing well. So I asked him to go to the ER immediately. And um, he was admitted, he had to be intubated, so he had it really bad. I just wish that we could all take this seriously. People are really dying, losing their lives, losing their loved one.
0: Alberto's partner, Jasmine, is a doctor, too. She specializes in infectious disease, which means family dinner conversations right now can be pretty intense.
1: It's always about what should we do next? How do we protect our family, patients who are not doing really well, what we could have done better or what do we do to prevent that from happening so I joke a lot with her saying, my job is to make sure none of my patients ever have to see you, because by the time they have to see you, I mean they're really bad. It's really trying to figure out how to catch it early so that they don't get so sick where they have to be intubated or go in a hospital where she has to take care of them.
0: So coming up next, we'll talk with Dr. Jasmine Marcellin about her experience treating COVID patients in Nebraska. She says this surge in the pandemic is exhausting healthcare workers, and she's tired of people calling them heroes. I'm Maddie Sophia, and you're listening to Shortwave from NPR. As of yesterday, Nebraska is considered one of the highest-risk states in the country. And some of Alberto's patients have ended up in the hospital, at the University of Nebraska Medical Center, where his partner, Dr. Jasmine Marcellin, is an infectious disease specialist. This particular hospital is known as one of the most pandemic-ready hospitals in the entire country— Back in 2014, the hospital had one of only a handful of biocontainment units that were prepared to take in Ebola patients. And now it's taking in hundreds of COVID patients. Dr. Marcellin, how are things looking right now at the hospital at this point in time?
2: Well, we have been going through a, um, a pattern of a surge over the last several weeks, and we uh, we were noticing that we were seeing more and more patients that are coming through. All of that leading up to the hospital becoming more and more full, and that was something that we were seeing across Nebraska.
0: Mm-hmm. And you know, my understanding is that you started with two COVID units last spring. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have a lot more now,
2: yeah, so our our hospital is um we still have a little bit of room, not much room left. How it has progressed over the last several months has made it so that we, uh, by early last week, we had been up to 10 COVID units that we wow. had uh, stood up in the hospital. And so several floors of, of one tower, we had to jump to another tower to create more COVID units. Mm-hmm. And we seem to have just a need for more and more units uh, being opened.
0: Yeah, So I know that, you know, even though that Nebraska has a tremendous amount of cases per capita, you know, one of the highest in the country right now, it does not have a mask mandate in place. Um, Many schools remain in person, you know, restaurants and bars are open for indoor dining. And I think, you know, it's safe to assume many people gathered in in groups over the Thanksgiving holiday. What are you anticipating for the trajectory of cases in the region and, and capacity at the hospital?
2: So, usually we would expect to see that, you know, when you see numbers doubling maybe every 14 to 21 days, we can expect to see that after, you know, major events or large gatherings would be anticipating surges. And so, as a whole, as healthcare professionals in Nebraska, we have all been pretty anxious about the uh, holiday season, knowing that it's really such an integral part of us as society to gather together. Mm -hmm. But what we're concerned about is what the impact of people continuing to to gather indoors is going to have. Mm -hmm. And I'm just sad for what we could have prevented with more definitive actions. You know, quite frankly, sometimes it's devastating. Seeing the extent of the damage that this does to individuals and the death that it can cause, all of that is just, it's preventable, Mm -hmm. you know? And I think that is the biggest tragedy for me, is, is it didn't have to be this way.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, Dr. Marcellin, I hear a lot of people talk about healthcare workers as heroes, right? Especially during the beginning of the pandemic. You know, how, how does it make you feel when you hear that, when you hear healthcare workers framed that way as, as heroes?
2: Yeah, we're not heroes. And for me personally, I cringe when I hear uh, people refer to healthcare workers as heroes uh, because at mm-hmm. the end of the day, what we really need is for everyone to sort of dig deep and, and take a look at the way that they could personally contribute to uh, making the world a better place. And right now in this moment, what it requires is on one hand some you know personal responsibility for each other mm-hmm. by wearing the masks and avoiding large gatherings but on the other hand it also requires courage and political will on the part of our leaders to be able to do the right thing with the power that they have you know access to and so to call us heroes and you know give people discounts or or light buildings specific colors and then turn around and not do the things that are going to keep us all safe is a little bit maddening. Yeah. To say the least. Yeah.
0: I mean there's an element of, you know, calling somebody a hero that I think allows you to think of that person as, as bulletproof in a way or yes. as as superhuman, which is, you know, really not not quite right right
2: yes and if if the healthcare workers are heroes then when they don't have enough personal protective equipment they'll still get it done anyways cuz they're heroes mm-hmm. if they have not had a vacation in x number of months they'll still get it done anyways because they're heroes and it really absolves the non-hero Individuals from recognizing what their role might be, and at the, I mean, at the end of the day, the healthcare workers would much rather uh, have people do the things that need to be done so that we can get through this pandemic. Yeah. And you know, having our our leaders and our lawmakers help the public by putting forth stronger restrictions and then financial support to the small businesses that will be impacted by these yeah. restrictions.
0: Yeah. You know, before we go, I think I think it's really important for people to kind of understand what's, what healthcare workers are thinking and what they're going through and what we're asking of them. You know, you're under immense stress. Like, how are you doing?
2: I am exhausted, and I, I I know that I am still even as exhausted as I am. I am probably not even half as exhausted as some of my colleagues who are working in the ICU. And I am I'm haunted by the memory of one in you know almost 900 Black Americans who have died as a result of COVID-19. And, you know, the one in, I think it's 925 uh, Native Americans Mm -hmm. who have died from COVID-19, their memories haunt me. At times, I'm overwhelmed with just the sadness Mm -hmm. of being in the midst of a time like this because... I see healthcare workers on one hand being lauded as heroes and on the other hand being accused of making stuff up, of being too alarmist, of just ridiculous things that is just so sad because we are trying to do our jobs. and. It is just, I think exhausting is the, the word mm-hmm. and it, to me, has transcended just a mere word to a, a way of life, a feeling, it's an exhausted, it's an exhausting life. <laughs> um, and uh, I used to tell people that I was fine when people would ask me how I'm doing and I don't anymore. Um particularly you know for for me as a as a black woman physician during this time it is compounded by a feeling of of inadequacy of being able to protect my community and also compounded by countless reminders of the violent oppression that Black people have to encounter on a daily basis and the numbers of people that are being shot and killed on top of being at risk for worse outcomes from COVID-19. Um, it's, this is not okay. And there's, I think many healthcare workers are not okay. Whew, wow, I mean, I'm sorry. I had to like I'm I'm like do not apologize. Willing myself to not cry right now. Do,
0: well, I'm glad you're not crying cuz I'm crying. Yeah, so I'm glad no. I just thank you for that. I mean, that is it's just it's really important to hear. It's really heartbreaking and I'm just so blown away and and very thankful that you shared that with us cuz I think people need to hear what we're asking of them. And that's that was really thank you. That's
2: I guess all I have to say. Thank you for, for receiving it. Of course, of course.
0: If you're a healthcare worker or you know one who would be willing to share their experience with the Shortwave team, email us at shortwave at npr.org. This episode was produced and reported by Britt Hansen fact-checked by Ariella Zabidi and edited by Giselle Grayson. I'm Maddie Safaya. Thanks for listening to Shortwave from NPR.
1: Women have been written off in rap and marginalized in the prison system. Philly rapper is the Savior is pushing back against both.
0: Think about the music industry. It's really like only five labels in the world. And who owns them? Old white men funding Black toxicity.
1: Listen now to Louder Than a Riot podcast from NPR Music.